This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khan Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, I hope uh, that you're enjoying things in Cancun, Mexico. Uh, since our last episode of Arab Talk, we are in the midst, especially with our colleagues and friends uh, in Texas and throughout the bulk of the country right now, in the midst of yet another catastrophe that's befallen the United States. Not only do we have a political catastrophe from the Trump administration, not only do we have a pandemic unlike anything we've seen in a 100 years, which continues to pose many challenges, now we're facing the painful reality of climate change catastrophe, and it's especially hitting the great state of Texas and the great people of Texas who are sitting in sub-zero temperatures without power, without water, uh, without the ability to kind of, you know, function day to day. And now we're seeing the collision, if you will, between uh, climate change and public health disasters. Frankly, Jamal, and I never say this, you know, that it can't get worse, but it certainly has gotten much worse for many people in the United States and especially people of Texas. Well, let's, uh, let, let me clarify to our listeners that you are kidding. I'm not in Cancun. <laughs> I'm still sheltered in place. And, and then we will get to that later on. But you're absolutely right. We have a major storm. It's called the Winter Storm Uri, which basically scattered bitter cold snow, ice this week across a huge swath of the United States. Uh, but, uh, of course, the largest state in that is Texas, which usually, you know, this time of the year, it has uh, mild weather. That's right. And now, uh, and, and, and this is a state that is not prepared. This is not a state on the East Coast. A lot of people don't even have a heating system in their homes. Uh, just right. That's why their pipes uh, have been freezing. This is literally... Uh, today, I was looking early in the morning, is the coldest day in northern Texas in 72 years. In 72 years, that's the, the recorded, actually in Dallas-Fort Worth area, and temperature re uh, reached below 2 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And of course, this has triggered a uh, whole wave of blackouts. And that's the big thing, because we can relate to this in in California because of the right. fires. So that's right. also another issue with this antiquated grid system that the United States has uh, so far. So it left millions of people in Texas shivering in the dark. Um, they're going to be without power uh, for days. And so there is the debate, what's going on? I mean, why do we have, you know, these episodes of... of, well, of High temperatures in the summer and cold temperatures in places that never sure. is the sure. case. And how is an episode of warming in the stratosphere just above the Arctic is leading to these well, chills in Texas and, and other parts? Sure, Jamal. Great questions. Let's just clarify a few things for our viewers and our listeners about Texas and their power grid. For decades now, Texas is the only state in the United States that has its own independent power grid. Every other state has a collaborative 
cooperative relationship among power grids. So if Arizona needs more power, for example, during a difficult time, they could draw power from California in a pinch. Texas, because it claims, you know, that has this kind of secessionist idea, they can do everything on their own. They're a great energy state, all of these crazy things. For decades now, Texas has seceded from the national power grid and seceded from the national guidelines for how to upgrade and keep the power grid going. So let's let, let, let's put that in context that the, what's happening in Texas is completely and unequivocally in the hands of Texas officials, primarily Republicans, who have decided not to upgrade the power grid for decades now, who have decided not to share cooperatively with other states, and who have decided not to follow federal guidelines, which require weatherizing your power grid and power sources so and preparing for these disasters. So the great state of Texas with all this great power that doesn't need anybody else, has failed its residents. So that's one issue. The second issue, Jamal, is this really painful, difficult reality that we as a, a, a as not just a country, but as a world, have not faced the debilitating impact that we've been seeing, this train wreck that we've been seeing for many decades now, with the, you know, basically big changes in climate. And what we've been seeing, especially the last number of years, is the polar ice caps and polar ice has been melting dramatically, which has changed the Gulf Stream, which has changed the pattern of weather significantly such that this week, Jamal, it was colder in Texas than it was in Anchorage, Alaska. So this painful reality of, of climate change has hit the great state of Texas and this country in ways, I mean, you have 100 million people that are in a deep freeze right now. But as you said, the people on the East Coast are kind of used to this. People in Texas don't have heat. There's no need that, for it. They're not prepared. And and then similarly, just you're talking about, of course, uh, the melting uh, ice. Uh, we also here suffer from extreme heats. We've seen that. And drought. For the past couple of years, at right. least with fires all over Northern California. Right. And also in Europe. Also in Europe, they've had all kinds of fires. So I'm worried. I mean, this is kind of this fluctuation going to extreme cold weather in certain parts of the country that is not used to having this extreme cold weather. And now extreme heat that might cause power, uh, I mean, that might cause fires that will cause f- uh, power failure. We which we've had, Jamal. Which we've had, had that, here. Yeah, we've had know. that in Northern California. But but you said something very important. In Texas, they don't have something, they don't have a backup system. They no, they don't. They cannot lean on other states no. to pick up the slack. So, so that's what's going they, on. But reason the reason they did that, Jamal, let, let's, let's kind of maybe put this in some kind of political context because... Texas Republicans run the state. They have the idea, and this is something we've been talking about for many, many years. They believe that the market and capitalism will solve all energy problems and that you don't need big government to interfere with the supply and demand of energy. And that's the way they have an open market system not regulated by the government, by the federal government guidelines, because they're off the national grid. So they have decided for the last 20 years 
to just let the market decide. And if you let these big energy companies decide whether or not to spend money on upgrading infrastructure, they haven't. And uh, it's an open market. Energy companies in Texas go in and out of business all the time. There are people in Texas, Jamal, I just uh, had heard about this from someone, who are being charged $1,500 for the last three days of energy. Wow. 30 hours of which they did not have because of the power outage. This is what happens when you let, quote, the market dictate the supply and demand of energy in a state and not let the U.S. and let not federal guidelines kind of dictate protections from people. So here we're seeing this kind of classic debate between the Republican point of view of let the market decide versus the uh, more you know, progressive democratic view, which says, well, yeah, it's okay. We live in a system of capitalism, but we need safeguards. We need guardrails because if we just let the market decide, you know, greed and avarice will dictate things and things like what what is happening in Texas, you know, will happen. It's just like what happened in Flint, Michigan. Well, a couple of years ago, as you know, in Houston, they also had flooding from right? all their torrential rain that their infrastructure Absolutely. collapsed and Absolutely. people were using robots to cross the street. I mean, and now uh, because what you're talking about, this energy uh, issue, uh, Texans have always been proud of having, of course, the largest supply of uh, fossil fuel. But now I'm reading that this is going to be interrupted and the pipes are getting, uh, you know, frozen and they cannot... Uh, basically uh, run the refineries because they don't have power. The prices of oil, I don't know for how long it's going to go up in the United States. This is also affecting uh, COVID vaccine distribution. Yeah, it's we'll a talk whole about big, big mess. Uh, but talking about politicians, and I want to go back to what you alluded to <laughs> about Cancun, the beginning of the show, uh, just so as millions of Texans continue to suffer in this sub-freezing temperature without uh, power and water. We have Senator Ted Cruz traveling with his family to sunny Cancun, Mexico. And nice. he was spotted at the airport. Just his timing was just when the storm was on its way, he skipped town to what Cancun. What a great senator. What and a great as senator. you know, uh, he was spotted, you know, uh, I mean by travelers, I guess, at the airport. His, his photo was posted and it created a whole big uh, brouhaha on social media, on Twitter. And as you know, uh, typical, typically in a disaster, <laughs> that's when you need your federal officers, your senators, your congressmen, congresswomen. Their primary role is, stay, is to stay in the state, communicate with the federal branch, including the President of the United States, making sure that all these emergency uh, reliefs uh, are, are and managed well, uh, lobby for extra money, for equipment, uh, you know, oversee what's going on. Right. And, 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 and here he is, boom, skips down. And I have one thing for you, just on, in December, by the way, the same Ted Cruz uh, was uh, mocking the governor for, I don't know, something similar, like not taking right. care of the affairs of the state. 
Well, that's the thing, Jamal. That's why Ted Cruz's hypocrisy and really um, profoundly ignorant, politically driven ideology is screwing over uh, tens of millions, uh, what you know, you know, millions of Texans right now, because Ted Cruz had the audacity to criticize the Green New Deal. He's made comments saying that wind turbines and solar energy are going to destroy, you know, the the Texas economy and and energy industry, and it's because of Ted Cruz's ideology, which says big government is a problem. People in Texas could take care of themselves. Well, Ted Cruz, your idea of taking care of yourself mm -hmm. is to abandon your state, abandon your constituents who are literally freezing to death right now while you luxuriate in Cancun. That's, that's the perspective. And I have a prediction for you, Jamal. Ted Cruz's uh, presidential aspirations have just frozen. They've just gone down the tubes. If, if Ted Cruz believes abandoning his constituents during a time of a catastrophe where people are dying and freezing to death is going to help him win the Republican nomination to become president, he's delusional. He just he is delusional. Yeah. And just a quick correction. Uh, I misspoke. In December, Ted Cruz hammered Austin's mayor, right. Steve Adler, for traveling to Mexico while urging Austonians to stay at home over the holidays. Right, right. So the Austin mayor, he, he went to Mexico for the holidays and Ted Cruz went after him because, you know, Austin's mayor is progressive. Right. He's a Democrat. Right. And, and, and now here they have the largest storm in Texas since 78 years ago. And the first thing Ted Cruz, he elopes, I would say, well, with his wife and children to, to Mexico and disappears. Well, I just, I just hope the people of Texas, it's a great state. There's a lot of great people who live in Texas. Um, it's an amazing state. It's really a beautiful, you know, it's a beautiful state in so many ways. I just hope that the people of Texas, and I'm not just talking about Democrats who see Ted Cruz's real colors, but I'm hoping all Texans will really see the true colors of Ted Cruz, uh, who has abandoned them, who's, who's turned tail and ignored and abandoned people in a time of crisis. But I also think, you know, you have the governor, Greg Abbott, who's also starting to blame, I mean, he was on Fox News yesterday blaming wind turbines for the grid problem. Didn't he also blame AOC? Yeah, of course, and the <laughs> New Green Deal. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the New Green Deal. And the issue is with all of these these uh, delusional uh, politicians, Jamal, is that they're in the pocket of the oil industry, as Greg Abbott is, as Ted Cruz is, and they believe you can basically, with greed and avarice, squeeze people from as much money as possible. And then if bad things happen, if the grid fails or there's not enough energy, too bad, because there is a mayor of a small town in Texas who told his constituents you know, too bad the government is not here now. He was telling his constituents who were, who were calling him and asking him for help. He actually had the audacity to post on Facebook, you're on your own. Big government is not here to save you. Only the strong will survive. The weak will die. He actually said that on, on Facebook. He has since resigned. But that gives you the idea of the Abbott, the Cruz, the Republican 
point of view is that government is not here to protect you, save you, or you know, help you get through life. You're on your own. And I do hope that the people of Texas will take this on when they think about the next election. My big worry, Jamal, in addition to all of this, is that every time you have a climate disaster, you have a public health disaster. Right. So not only are people who are trying to get access to vaccines and medical care, that's all off the table. But when pipes burst, Jamal, and water leaks everywhere, then you're going to have a mold problem. Okay. Well, they, 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 issued, they issued, I think, the, uh, in, in Houston, a, an alert to boil the water there. Yeah, but how long, how long can water. you boil water, man? I mean, yeah, I mean, this... and especially if you don't have power on and, and, you, exactly. and, and you're not getting gas or... The, but they're asking because that's the major worry is that they're going to have exactly polluted drinking water. Right. And then homes, because they're flooded, will are more likely to develop mold problems. Mold is obviously terrible for your health. So what we're seeing is a train wreck with the pandemic and COVID-19 on top of this new train wreck of, you know, devastating health impact from from the freezing. People are going to die. EMS services can't reach people who need medical care. The roads are not safe to travel. So like like I said, there's a collision course here between the climate catastrophe and now a public health catastrophe. So I can't tell you how terrible I feel mm-hmm. for for people in Texas, you know, Absolutely. right now. Absolutely. And it's, we, we wish just, the people in Texas. No, I wish the people of all Texas. The best. No, I wish them better politicians, Jamal. Yes. Well, also now I wish that they get the proper help. You know, it's always uh, the case when the a small or average man and woman are the victim uh, at the end of the day when these politicians are vacationing in Cancun. I want to switch uh, gears here, uh, Jess, uh, and go to uh, Palestine. And, and you know, uh, for the past uh, 28 days, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, waited anxiously for a call from what he termed his close friend and ally <laughs> for 30 years, U.S. President uh, Joe Biden. The call finally came on Wednesday evening. So Netanyahu was very jubilant uh, and he was saying it was a warm and friendly and continued for approximately one hour. He said in a statement, thanked uh, President Biden. Uh, but, and this is vintage uh, Netanyahu, so, so this has just happened, didn't take long. Then he eulogized Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> who we all know very well. Uh, he passed away at the age right. of 70 and said that he was a great friend of Israel and he stood by us through thick and thin. Uh, we shall miss him uh, dearly. And if anything you know, or anybody knows anything about Rush Limbo and about all his uh, racist diet traps, uh, and he's a, he, for the past, I would say, six months nonstop, he has been attacking Biden, attacking right. him. I mean, saying crazy stuff about him. And, um, you know, going after him and, and, you know, limbo, use of indiscriminate insults, derogatory 
and demeaning language, including, by the way, when I remind our listeners, and I'm quoting here, so excuse me for quoting him, he was referring to Barack Obama as Barack the Magic Negro. That's how he was describing him time and time again. That's right. On on radio, you know. But that is a good not, friend of not, Israel. Not to, not, but to you mention, could, not to mention anything every, yeah. aside from the racism, the misogyny, the put-downs. But those are uh, good friends of Israel, I'm, Jamal. I'm quoting statements like, feminism was established so as to allow unattractive women access to the mainstream of society. That's a, I'm co- giving you some quotes from Rush Limbo. Homophobic tantrums, um, uh, he was also saying, and I, I don't want to even quote them because uh, probably they're not good to be quoted. Anyway, that's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's buddy. He well, couldn't here, wait here, but five yeah. minutes after yeah. he received the call sure. from Biden to throw that, this uh, his eulogy back into his in in his face. But here's the admiring, thing: admiring, admiring uh, Rush Limbaugh, uh, misogynists, homophobes, racists, hateful people. Those are the friends of Israel, and those are the Israeli, you know, friends. And then, you know, that's no surprise that Benjamin Netanyahu would eulogize so positively among the most deeply hateful, racist, misogynistic, and, you know, we might we just have to call it what it is, you know, proud white supremacists in Rush Limbaugh. Because that's actually what the that's what Israel represents, Jamal. And, you know, it's you don't see um Benjamin Netanyahu eulogizing uh former Congressman Lewis, for all of his anti-racist, you know, human rights work, you see him eulogizing Rush Limbaugh. No surprise to me, but I'll I'll throw this out to you for comment. I somehow don't believe that it was such a warm and fuzzy meeting between Benjamin Netanyahu and Joe Biden. I get the sense that it was a little different than his meetings with uh, ex-President Trump. I'm sure it's different. I'm sure that's for sure that it was different. And that's why there was a a, a month wait, 28 days uh, before he called him, you know, after he called uh, uh, several other uh, world leaders. And after people started to ask questions, they were like posing questions at the press conference, you know, to the press secretary. When will President Biden called Netanyahu. I mean, you know, people and articles about it, but it took 28 days. That's unprecedented. So the message is is loud and clear, even though we've discussed last week, the change is not going to be coming. Like when it comes to moving the embassy, uh, you know, back to Tel Aviv, that's not going to happen. But definitely it's a whole different relations. Netanyahu, Netanyahu, Jamal, I believe is on a much shorter leash now. Yeah. So on, um, well, first of all, um, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. And uh, we're moving to another topic, just it's, it's related. And we're very happy to have hosted a guest from Palestine, which, by the way, uh, Palestine is covered with snow. Jerusalem, is covered. I've been seeing all these pictures. So they have also a major snowstorm blanketing uh, the area. And uh, we had the, uh, uh, the good opportunity to speak again to 
uh, Sunny Mayo, who is the publisher of uh, This Week in Palestine. And, yeah, great and magazine. We, it's a great we magazine. We spoke to him a while back, but they've now surpassed 20 years in business publishing this magazine under occupation. So let's listen and watch Mr. Sunny Mayo. A land without people for a people without a land. Seriously, should I then erase the memory of my great-grandfather who was born in Jerusalem in 1856 and who established his business there in 1872? These are the words of Sunny Mayo, the publisher of This Week in Palestine. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Sunny. Hello, Jamal. How are you? It's been a while since we've had you on the show, Sunny. At the time, you spoke to us after Israeli occupation soldiers busted into your offices in 2014 and confiscated computers and equipment. Uh, can you quickly remind our audience on what had happened? Um, yes, it was end of June 2014. Uh, I had a call. It was a Sunday morning. Uh, um, I, I was in, informed uh, by a telephone call that uh, 12 Israeli army uh, soldiers really raided our offices in practically downtown Ramallah. They broke in the multi-log and they wiped us clean. I mean, they took all the you know, the computers, the two servers, the photo archive, the screens, and the whole lot. And um, I never heard of them from them since, not before and not after. And that was that. So they kept everything basically just to, in an attempt to shut you down. And it was intimidation, more like we're here, we're watching you. But, uh, you know, uh, didn't stop me, of course. Yeah. So you started uh, basically as a design house in the early 90s. And in 1998, I think the name of your company, Turbo Design, put out the first issue of uh, an English language magazine called This Week in Palestine. And the rest is history. You've been in business uh, for more than... 20 years, what inspired you uh, to do it? Actually, you're going to make me look uh, older. Actually, we've been in business for 35 years because wow. the company started in 1985 as a software house. And in 1986, around there and beginning of 87, we wanted a, a, a word processor in Arabic and there wasn't a, a good one. So we developed one. For a whole year, we wrote our own word processor slash developer, I mean, uh, a desktop publisher, really, multilingual, and we started using it. And that sort of um, started us on the road of a design firm. Early 90s, we stopped being a software house, you know, application and all sorts, and we concentrated on being a, a design firm. Um, in December uh, 1998, as you said, the first issue of This Week in Palestine came out. It was an idea 
by a friend of ours, Hassan Al Khatib, Dr. Hassan Al Khatib. He came us. He came to us end of the year, maybe around October, and he suggested to put out like a pamphlet, a periodical uh, in English, essentially to inform tourists and pilgrims that were supposed to come to Palestine at the you know, eve of the third millennium, the year 2000. There was nothing in English. And we liked it, the idea. We thought we were in position to, to implement such a project. And we started it. Actually, we started bi-weekly, hoping to become weekly. Um, this is why we called it This Week in Palestine. But um, we got stuck with the name. And October 2000, when tourists stopped coming, uh, we decided to go ahead and instead of like regress, uh, instead of uh, we, we thought of giving it content and become a, a, a more a magazine. And we became a hundred page small size magazine in 2000, uh, October 2000. I've been looking. So at we've you. been 22 years in print yeah. and online. Yeah, so I've been looking at your recent issues, and 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 you're absolutely right. Now you you come up with different themes. Uh, you know this this uh, latest uh, issue, the February 2021. Uh, the focus is on Palestine in the 19th century. Uh, you talk about the first mayors uh, in in Palestine. And 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 you, and I started the show by by quoting you, which you started with that infamous quote, "A land uh, <laughs> with no people," uh, and and in it you you really kind of putting the narrative forward that there was a culture, there were people, there was governance, and and so on. I mean, uh, and then. Uh, your next issue, according to your website, is going to focus on women's empowerment and you're focusing on the environment. I mean, is this the goal to educate now uh, not only Palestinians, uh, but also Palestinians in diaspora and the rest of the world about the history of Palestine? Okay, our self-imposed mandate is essentially to promote and document Palestine. What we publish is not news. And actually, while we're, we're at it, since I've been in print for 22 years, we have amassed um, literally thousands of articles. They're non-news. And we've become a source of information on Palestine. And um, we're working on a portal, website, whatever, where we can, um, where we're, categorizing our articles. And, you know, if you want an article on cultural heritage, here you go, here's like 60 articles. And you know, Mitt, we've been, we're thematic in our approach. Every month, as you said, we focus on a certain, on a certain uh, theme. And we, we try to give it just a justice. February was Palestine in the 19th century. Obviously the message was, it was certainly not a land without people. And those who came in inherited even an infrastructure. I mean, the first mayor of Jerusalem was appointed during the Ottoman times in 1863. So uh, that's like 100 years before the creation of the state of, uh, state of Israel. And so there were people, there were history, there was the culture. And actually, in the 19th century, as the content suggests, 
it was quite a cosmopolitan, particularly Jerusalem and, and Jaffa. They were quite cosmopolitan. Um, remember, uh, there were changes in the uh, made by the Ottomans, whereby the uh, Europeans were allowed to, uh, you know, come and build in Jerusalem. So there was a craze of coming to Palestine in the second part of the uh, 19th century. Uh, March, normally we we dedicate it to women because of the Women's International's Day. Uh, environment is always a very important uh, topic and we try to cover uh, from, you know, biodiversity, uh, the soil, land, water, you know, all aspects of uh, environment. And May, actually, every when we issue every edition, we announce our themes three months ahead of time. So we know from May, uh, from now, that the theme for May is Palestine Realpolitik, like Otto von Bismarck style. Mm-hmm. You know, what pragmatic policies should we, should we adopt in all sectors, whether politics, health, education, economy, whatever. So this is, we are, we have become a source of information on, uh, on, on Palestine. I'd like to think so, at least. So if you, if you had to break down your uh, readership, uh, where are they? Do you think uh, they're spread all over the world uh, amongst Palestinians or just everyone else? Uh, or do you have more people on the ground? As I always say, I mean, our readership or our target group more than our readership is anybody interested in Palestine friend or foe. Um, uh, of course, the locals, uh, being the only um, publication of its kind, really, we have one on uh, economy, but uh, as like a, um, a cultural sort of magazine, this is how we like to see ourselves. We're pretty much the only ones. So pretty much most internationals and expatriates read this week in Palestine. Plus, all Palestinians or most Palestinians who read English, and it goes to the NGO community, the UN, the the public sector, of course, the you know ministries and the hospitality hospitality industry, uh, cultural centers, uh, widespread. Actually, we distributed widely both the print and the online. Of course, the online includes diaspora community most definitely includes research centers anybody interested in palestine or even the middle east um, you know just people you know my i always say you know my main example is an old japanese lady who's been following us for like good 10 if not 15 years and she's just interested in in, in palestine and what's going on so anybody who is interested uh, in Palestine is a potential client or, or target audience uh, uh, for us, really. I mean, is there a specific country or region that you get through uh, the maybe uh, Google Analytics that kind of uh, tells you uh, we're getting this much uh, traffic from the United States or from Europe and so forth? Actually, we just launched a new website. We did a major facelift. And I was told that actually the USA uh, 
the largest number that visit us come from the United States. I am very keen to attract um, Chileans and Argentinians and, and people from Honduras of Palestinian origins that were there are now Chileans, second, third, and even fourth gen generation. The new generation is more, you know, savvy. They wanted to connect to uh, their roots. They speak English, although our target is to translate as many as possible into both Spanish and Arabic to, to attract uh, more readers, really. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you have more than 400,000 Palestinians who, who live in Chile. I mean, Hello. That's, uh, that's uh, Hello. Most of them from Bejala. I mean, <laughs> most of the ones I've met, and I have never met so many people from Bejala in Bejala, right? So every single every single Chilean I've met, uh, and I've met quite a few here and there, and I and 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 they're the ones, of course, of Palestinian heritage. I say, where did your family come from? And they say Bejala. I'm like shocked, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, there are way more people from Bejala in Chile than in Be Bejala itself. There are plenty of, you know, the Bethlehem Tri-City area, not only in, in Chile, but uh, in uh, in Central America, there's, there's quite a few. There's quite a few. And so, um, you know, for multiple reasons. First, for them to be informed um, and to connect in here, because uh, seriously, um, I consider them as like our strategic depth and they're a resource that we haven't even started to tap uh, uh, from, you know, the know-how, the experience, the connection from being there. Uh, so there is like immense benefit from connecting with the diaspora uh, uh, community in those countries. Well, talking about the diaspora right here in the United States, and that's where most of our audience is, and we that's why we have you on the show, and we hope uh, our listeners will go to your website and, and support you. Now, uh, I know, I mean, based on experience, it's really tough to be in print journalism, I mean, in, in this day and age, and then, of course, being on the internet helps. How do you manage to sustain uh, your work? I mean, uh, is it through advertising? Is it through uh, donors? How do you do it? Okay. Um, historically, when we actually when we first started, uh, the fees that we got from advertising space was supposed to cover costs and hopefully make uh, some pro uh, some profit. You know. During the past few years, uh, printing business has been going down, of course. And so we're gearing more towards uh, the virtual, the online. Uh, but still, our main income today comes from the, the print, interestingly enough. 2020 was very difficult for us because historically, we depended on the tourism and the cultural sectors, both practically dead. We, in, we stressed on our always declared policy of anything promotional incurs a cost. So an article about a certain institution in return for the visibility and exposure that we give, they pay a certain fee. And this is what sustained us mostly during 2020. Uh, we always aim 
to sponsor issues like this issue is sponsored by this institution. In 2019, we had maybe seven issues out of the 12 that were, that were sponsored. In 2020, we had one. 2021 is, is, has proven to be much better than 2020 so far. The February issue was sponsored. The March issue is sponsored. The May issue is half sponsored. I'm waiting to hear from a potential sponsor for the April issue. If that works, I already have two and a half uh you know uh, sponsors and uh, we're talking we still uh, still in may and this is how we um you know survived and i'm using the word survive and i mean and, and i mean it i mean we're not flourishing we're barely um well i uh, noticed on your website uh, you didn't have a a button or a page for contribution or paying membership like most uh, online publications because you talk about sponsorship and I assume that um, like an NGO or a, a, a governmental agency would sponsor an entire issue. But you're not talking about... Now we do. Yeah. But you, now we do. Uh, and now if you go www.thisweekinpalestine.com, just one word, you will have the donate button. Oh, and okay. give me literally, literally two or three days, I'll have the subscription. The subscri uh, subscription allows you to, to access all, uh, all back issues. Mm -hmm. And then you can subscribe to the print edition. And you can also buy a gift, you know, buy a gift subscription to somebody else. Just literally give me till the end of the week, the subscription will be online, but the donate button is functional now. Well, that's that's really good because this is what, uh, you know, I'm hoping through our listeners in um, the Bay Area and beyond that, uh, and I know a lot of people like to keep connected with what's going on in Palestine. So they go to your website thisweekinpalestine.com and then they can subscribe. I mean, that's, I think, the best gift aside from the donation. The best gift is to have, True. Uh, you know, the people in the diaspora, uh, you know, subscribe on a, on a monthly basis or on a yearly basis because uh, th there is a lot of valuable information. I think it's a treasure of information, to tell you the truth. I mean, because I know Thank you. you. And I know your work and I know you're not a huge company and how difficult it is to put together an issue uh, month after month. That's, uh, yeah, that's it's very a lot challenging. Of work. It's a lot of work, but Jamal, we love what we do. I mean, the team that we have, I mean, they work in extreme conditions, literally in every sense of the word. But the, you could sense the passion, um, irrespective of the business side. Of course, we want it to be sustainable. And this is what we're working on, on, on getting to be sustainable. We are content providers. You know, apart from what we believe is a very, it's, it's an essential um, uh, work that, uh, that we do. We provide content which is um, uh, independent, comes for the civil society, and professionally in a format. I mean, it's professionally edited and the layout is, 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 is professional. We think, we'd like to think what we do is very important, but um, we sense very little public understanding or support 
uh, of, of what we do. Today, uh, you know, public diplomacy is based on content, Jamal, and mm-hmm. we give content, we give context. As, as you mentioned, the 19th century Palestine, okay, they go ahead and say people without the land. And here we go. And I have like 14 articles that talk about this family or talk about, you know, the industry that was in the 19th century and prove there is documentation. I mean, we're up, uh, against vile, or if you want to, or whatever adjective you want to use, but a media machine that is ferocious, you know, and we're trying and, and we need all the support, you know, financial and even moral support. Uh, you know, sorry to mention it. Uh, the Minister of Culture called me the, like a, a month ago and said, oh, the Minister of Culture would like to publish an article. No, the ministers, our ministers love to publish because we add value and they always look good, irrespective. So she asked me, um, uh, you know, if the minister can publish an article. I said, in principle, of course. I mean, uh, uh, why not? And then I took the opportunity and told her, don't you see it's a bit odd? I've been doing this for 22 years. Come rain, come shine. I've been, you know, invaded by Israeli soldiers. I've been, I took a shot for you you guys. You know, not a very big shot, but it was a a, a shot. And I was never acknowledged. I mean, (laughs) I am, Yanni, shame shame on you. At least acknowledge. And now somebody is doing something for Palestine. Well, aside from just acknowledgement, because uh, now you're saying it, but also if they call themselves the Ministry of Culture, you're part of the culture. So the Ministry of Culture's role is to support culture. So aside from the moral support, I think they can also support you financially. I think I spoke too much. Anyway, I'll (laughs) let it rest here. Well, uh, what's your, uh, if you were going to think about the next three years, what's your vision, aspiration? Where do you see yourself okay. at? As I told you, we're tagging all of our, I don't know, six, seven, eight thousand articles, categorize them, um, do massive international advertising, advertising, Google ads, uh, whatever, and Actually, sell subscription. If you want the whole archive of This Week in Palestine, you have to pay like $60 a year. And with the massive advertising and hopefully translation of at least hundreds of articles into Spanish and, and Arabic, I'm hoping to attract 5,000 subscribers. With $60, I will ensure sustainability. This no. is how I, I aim to reach sustainability. Well, I hope you can do it. And we're... But it takes money our... to make money, Jamal, well, as you know. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it's a well-worth-it cause. And I think it's something beneficial for our viewers and listeners to support This Week in Palestine. Go to their website, thisweekinpalestine.com. Subscribe today. Keep in touch with your heritage. Uh, Like I said, it's a treasure trove of really information if you want to know about your history. Uh, Sunny, we've been, uh, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, We've been talking to Sunny Mayo, the publisher of This Week in Palestine.
Thank you, Jamal. Take care, everybody. Good luck. Well, that's the voice and the, the face of Mr. Sonny Mayo. Um, an incredible person, Jamal, has seen so much and under really extraordinary circumstances has continued to publish this really amazing you know, magazine every week, This Week in Palestine, which I know every time I go there, because, you know, obviously you get you can get it in English. Um, it's really such a beautiful, amazing kind of assessment of everything you can do in Palestine that particular week, what's happened and what to look forward to. It's really a great magazine. He should be celebrated for his steadfastness in well, continuing well, to celebrated is one thing, but also we encourage, because they need to survive, we encourage our listeners and viewers to go to thisweekinpalestine.com and subscribe. That's what they're asking for. I mean, they're asking really, if you enjoy the magazine, subscribe to it. As you know, it's very tough to, to be in print media. Absolutely. So uh, also, don't forget to go to our website, arabtalkradio.com. <laughs> and download the latest episodes. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.